नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार बुक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज कुशल मेहरा फर्स्ट ऑफ ऑल अपॉलॉजीज बिकॉज आई हैव स्टार्टेड फाइव मिनट्स अर्लियर बिकॉज वी जस्ट गॉट रेडी फाइव मिनट्स अर्लियर सो आई वाज लाइक व्हाई नॉट स्टार्ट फाइव मिनट्स अर्लियर बट टुडेस पॉडकास्ट इज अबाउट अ सब्जेक्ट दैट आई एम ऑब्सेस्ड विद and i am doing it with someone who is equally obsessed with this subject we share a common obsession the south russian homeland so kartik welcome hi glad to be here uh good morning and uh, so for people who don't uh, have an idea of why and what is going to happen in today's podcast i'll just give them a brief background because before i hand it over um completely to kartik because today it's going to be a presentation that kartik has prepared and uh, it's all his nothing to do with me so full credit to kartik and uh, so i have been obsessed with the south russian homeland uh, for people who don't know what the south russian homeland is well it is about uh, the origin point of the proto indo european language family as you know there is a proto indo european language family hypothesis and uh, the consensus view as of a few months ago uh, was that uh, south russia was the proto indo european homeland now since the last few months there have been a set of new papers first starting with the lazaridis et al which are called the sadanak papers yeah, and kartik correct me if i'm wrong but i think there were three sadanak papers right in total yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, and then uh, recently there was one paper that was I think in the Max Planck Institute, if I remember correctly, it was written by Paul Hegarty et al. And mm-hmm. uh, these papers have thrown the or set the cat amongst the pigeons, as they say. Now, uh, uh, Karthik is an equally enthusiastic person. Karthik mm-hmm. regularly joins me on the Patreon discussions also, and we just had a discussion. Karthik and I have been going back and forth on this subject offline. most of the times uh, uh about where could be the homeland and you know personally kartik and i have been south russian homeland hypothesis skeptics from 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 a long time uh, uh i am a oit skeptic also but i am a big promoter of shrikant alagiri's internal chronology so there are a lot of things that have to come together and then uh, kartik and i were discussing and i requested kartik look the hegarty papers have come so what do we do kartik said look what we can do is we can create a holistic claim based on multiple streams of uh, information and kartik mm-hmm. was kind enough to make a presentation so kartik thank you very much and now i'm going to uh, uh, before i put up the presentation on the screen do you have anything to add no not really very much i mean we've been going back and forth on this um, subject a lot with uh, you know your internal uh, group that you have on patreon and uh, you know it's been a really great resource we've been reading a lot of stuff and uh, reading stuff from that that runs both sides of the argument and uh, i think that's been very valuable and so you know of course i'd encourage anyone else that's interested to sort of join those discussions as well but uh, right. yeah so uh, uh, do you want me to to put the presentation yeah, up yeah now? go ahead go for it all right cool kartik then i'm putting it up and i'm handing it over to you now okay great so okay so i'm calling this new frontiers in indo european prehistory because you know what's been happening is that over the last few years well actually uh, since 2021 you know there have been various things coming up there have been various publications coming up that have um you know called into question various assumptions uh, on which the uh, the step theory is premised right and the, the step theory of indo-european origins is premised and uh, of course the ones that were most earth-shaking or the most uh, significant have been as you mentioned the uh, lazaridis papers from last years and then the um, Hegarty paper from this year, but there have been a few things before that as well. So let's just go into that. 
Uh, first of all, let's look at what the step hypothesis is, right? I mean, just to remind people. So the step hypothesis is that, you know, uh, Indians uh, used to live in the Indus Valley civilization. They used to speak some language that, you know, certain scholars like Akso Parpola have been calling Dravidian. Um, you know, there's been all kinds of allegations made about the Indus Valley language. But at one time, suddenly, the Aryans arrived from the middle of the steppe. And, um, you know, uh, they came with horses, which they had never heard of here. They came with spoked wheels, which had never been heard of. And they came with language, which is, you know, Indo-European languages, including Sanskrit, including the Vedas. And they were completely, you know, they were white European people. And the locals here were, I don't know, um, whatever other ancestry that, that they were considered to have. So the whole thing is sort of, you know, this has become the received or accepted uh, conventional wisdom. And that's, you know, it's, it's the basis of what's taught in schools these days. So where does this come from? It comes from, well, it comes from various streams of analysis. The first one being linguistic, right? So this figure here is from, um, you know, it's from the book um, by uh, Lewis and Perelzweig. But what it is, is it's a figure from Ringi. Don Ringi is, is the linguist who um, came up with this formulation for the family tree of uh, Indo-European languages. And... Uh, in addition to Ringi's figure, I put here some dates. These are my, uh, I put here these dates. They're based on uh, <clears throat> um, David Anthony's book. So David Anthony is another, you know, he's the most often commonly cited um, uh, theorist to, de to uh, you know, to talk about step hypothesis and so on. And uh, I also put here in blue some of his um, scenarios by which these things travel. So, uh, According to this particular schema, things start out with Proto-Indo-European, uh, and this happens around 4,500 to 4,000 BCE, this Proto-Indo-European. There is a migration called the suvorovo Novodaniloka migration that brings Anatolian into Turkey from the steppe. I mean, yeah, his, of course, the steppe hypothesis that Proto-Indo-European was started in the steppe, that people spoke it in the steppe, even though there is, uh, people are probably not surprised to know that there is absolutely no um, evidence, no primary evidence at all that such a language was ever spoken in the steppe. There's no, um, there's no tablets, no documents, no parchments, nothing like that. And in fact, people in the steppe today, uh, to the extent that they speak any Indo-European languages, that they speak, um, you know, uh, Russian and Slavic languages, thanks to Soviet expansion into that area. So anyway, Suvorovo Novodaliloka brings Anatolian into uh, Turkey, what is now Turkey, uh, 4200 to 3500. Uh, what's remaining is called PNIE or Proto-Nuclear Indo-European. Afanasievo migrations bring Tocharian into um, what is the Tarim Basin. It's it's in uh, East Turkestan or what the Chinese like to call Xinjiang. The remaining part of it is called Proto-Surviving Indo-European, PSIE. That's 3300 to 3000 BCE. Then you have this group called the Yamnaya in the steppe that just starts to expand willy-nilly into Europe and uh, carries these various language families into Europe with it. And, um, you know, including Germanic, Albanian, and uh, Italo-Celtic. And then uh, a core Indo-European remains in, in the steppe, which then further splits up into Greco-Armenian. Um, uh, David Anthony doesn't really say how Greek gets into Greece from the steppe. He says uh, all kinds of scenarios could have been possible, but he admits that, you know, he can't prove how it did. And then uh, Corded Ware... Uh, culture is the other branch of this. Corridware is in Poland, uh, you know, modern-day Poland, Latvia, that area. And um, 
you know, they speak some some sort of a version of IE that's, you know, branches off into Balto Slavic and Indo-Iranian. Um, then uh, we, we'll take a look at this in the next slide, which is how it comes to India. The, the things to note the things to note here are that this is almost like a train timetable. So, you know, if you start from Proto-Indo-European at 4,500 to 4,000 BCE, you will end up with Indic, the Rig Veda and so on, coming to India only by 1500 BCE. It's like the... You know, if it leaves um, whatever Virar at this time, it'll come to Churchgate at this time. You know, it's it's like there's no other way for this to happen, and that's why there's this continuous insistence that Sanskrit, Vedas, Hinduism, etc., come to India only by 1500 BC. Um, the word roots here. I mean, so how is this done? I mean, um, you know, of course, you've done some great podcasts with uh, Dr. Elst, Conrad Elst, and uh, Shrikanth ji, and they've explained what the Indo-European family is. So I'm, you're not going to go deeply into that. But really, what's how this whole family tree is constructed is that word roots and ancestral languages are reconstructed from derived words in later languages, following rules of phonological and morphological change. So there are certain rules by which um, languages change, and uh, you know uh, the, the sort of neurolinguistic, the universal, and uh, you can. I mean, the, the linguists believe, or at least paleolinguists believe, that you can reconstruct words in ancestral languages from the existing words in the um, descendant languages. The relationships between language families are estimated based on distance. So the commonality or divergence of changes accumulated in one versus the other. So, you know, if there's some uh, innovation that happens here, but not here, then you know that uh, these are from one family and these are from another family, or, you know, these guys are missing it, so on. So that, that's how this stuff is figured out. So this is what it looks like from um, a geographical perspective. This is a figure from Narasimhan's paper, Vagish Narasimhan et al., uh, 2019. Um, according to them, this whole orange area is the steppe, right? Um, steppe is basically grassland. It's prairie. Um, and the contention, even though they never make it that explicitly by the steppe hypothesis people, is that this entire area had a common culture. They had, um, you know, probably a common language family, if not a common language and that they had the capacity to spread it everywhere else in Asia, which is, I mean, we'll get into that, but it's, you know, the, there's no uh, obvious reason why that should be true, except for the fact that it's been repeatedly asserted. I've drawn some additional arrows to uh, Narasimhan's uh, figure. So, um, you know, just to make it a little bit more complete, but these are my arrows, not his. So uh, the first thing is this, uh, what we talked about, Suvarovo, Novodaliloka, migration from... Um, this group here in the steppe, in the Pontic Caspian steppe, um, into Anatolia, what is now Turkey, thir uh, about 3900 to 3500 BCE. Um, that's how the Anatolian language comes there. Then the next step, there's two migrations. One goes all the way to the east here, uh, to the Altai Mountains in Mongolia. It's called the Afanasievo uh, migration, around 3000 BCE. Uh, simultaneously, a different group, and, and that's what brings the Tokarin language, supposedly, to Xinjiang. Uh, simultaneously, there's um, various Yamnaya migrations. This is called the Yamnaya horizon that come into Europe. One goes to Germanic, one goes to Italic, one goes to Celtic, you know, and so on. Then there's another stage at which they say that, you know, Proto-Indo-European died. This is literally Anthony's word. It was a dead language in the steppe by 2500 BCE. What was left was a core um, set of uh, languages that eventually became either Balto-Slavic, which comes out here. This is the corded ware culture in uh, whatever Latvia and Poland. And another group comes all the way after having traveled west, they go all the way east 
and they go into um, uh, India or Iran. And um, in one case, Indo-Iranic, in the other case, Indic. And um, this is supposed to be a common migration thread that ha that happens from there, which is, I mean, we'll get into the merits of everything, but this is what they say happened. Okay. So um, we'll get into uh, this. So what are the what are the arguments? I mean, we want to steel ban this. I mean, we don't want to you know dismiss it out of hand. We want to uh, make sure that we present the the step hypothesis as intended and why it's believed uh, why it's believed in as commonly as it is. I mean, I I would recommend that everyone should read David Anthony's book because it it is a very nice articulation of what they've laid out, and then you can criticize it in your own mind. It's called the horse, the wheel, and language. Um, so um, it starts by saying, the step hypothesis starts by saying that the Yamnaya, which is these guys, you know, they had, um, you know, from 3300 to 2700 BC, they had domesticated horses. So they had been able to tame horses and make them do their will, you know, ride them. And that this gave them better speed and mobility as nomadic pastoralists. So what is a nomadic pastoralist? The Yamnaya don't have towns, they don't have cities, they don't have any permanent settlements at all that they left behind. What they have is Kurgans, we'll get, we'll get to what that is. But uh, the fact is that they rode horses, and uh, I mean, well, but it's claimed that they rode horses, so um, they were able to manage large herds of cattle and sheep, and, uh, you know, because you can sort of ride around them and make sure that uh, all of them are, you know, the more you can move around, it's better. And they used to just drive them from one area to another to another to new sources of water, new sources of, uh, you know, graze, uh, grazing um, pastures and so on. And uh, because they had larger herds, they gained commercial power. And then also they had a military advantage because they could ride horses. So when they could raid for cattle, they could go and, you know, even if they were like settled farming communities, they could go and steal the cattle from them. It's very important to realize that these are not the same as Scythians or Mongols or Shakas or anything like that. Because, you know, the Mongols, for example, they had stirrups. Stirrups, I mean, and you did a great podcast with, with uh, I think, Abhijit Tayarbitra about this. You know, where he talked a lot about horses and cavalry and so on, and um, the it's, the stirrup is basically it's it's like a thing you can put your foot in. It's attached to the saddle. If you put your foot in that, you know, it's much easier to ride a horse for a long distance or at high speed if you have stirrups. If you don't have that, your core muscles are doing a lot of the work of staying on the horse and remaining stable. So you just can't do it for more than you know a few hours as opposed to, you know, days and months and weeks like the Mongols used to do. So you can't, I mean, it's clear that the Yamnai did not have stirrups anyway. Uh, but there is, in fact, there's no generally accepted evidence of systematic horse domestication before 2500. Take note of these dates, please. 3300 to 2700 is what the step hypothesis says. There is no generally accepted uh, evidence that there was any horse domestication before 2500 BC. Um, David Anthony, uh, claims that there is evidence from 3700 BC in the Botai steppe, which is in Kazakhstan, and it's based on bitware. So, like, you know, you would actually put a rope or something into a horse's mouth, you know, to be able to control it. And um, David Anthony says that because there were all these ropes and leather bits and so on, um, the, uh, there, there were malocclusions or deformations of the horse's teeth, which you can um, you know, look at the skeletons and see that that was there. And he says that about 12 to 26% of uh, samples from Botai had that. But other evidence, uh, you know, other experts like uh, Marsha Levine said there actually, there is no, um, that's not, that's just not valid. You know, the fact that uh, like Marsha Levine would tell you, she, who's actually a horse expert would say that there is no um, basis for saying that there was domestication. 
Um, genetic evidence of systematic horse domestication. So this is the first blow I was talking about. Uh, comes from Orlando et al. Uh, Ludovico Orlando and his lab um, in 2021 published a paper that says that basically systematic horse domestication started only from 2400 to 2300 BCE. Um, and this is kind of interesting. So uh, the fact is that Anthony's, Anthony finds evidence of horse domestication here. And the Yamnaya, of course, here, which is about 2,000 kilometers away, um, he make, Anthony makes the claim, of course, that you know the steppe had a common language, common culture, this and that, and uh, that the Yamnaya had adopted somehow horse domestication all the way from there, and that the Yamnaya were the vehicle or the vector for horse domestication coming to Western Eurasia you know, uh, as they expanded into Eurasia. But the truth is, um, if if that had been the case, you would find some extent of um, genetic ancestry from the Bowtie horses over here and the horses that were eventually domesticated and exported around the world from West Eurasia. And that is not so. You don't find any common ancestry at all. So that's the first kind of problem that the step hypothesis runs into. Then Kurgans. What is a Kurgan? It's basically, you know, um, it's a mound. It's a bunch of rocks that are piled up on top of a grave. And then, you know, of course, the mud and grass and everything grows over those rocks. And sometimes they will have a ring of other stones placed around them. I mean, it's interesting, but it's also, it's really not very distinctive, right? I mean, it's it's not like, you know, you can tell the difference between a, a Byzantine temple and a Greek temple and an Indian temple by the architectural, uh, by, by details of the architectural style. There's not much architecture here. It's just a bunch of rocks. And uh, the whole Kurgan step hypothesis started out because of a lady named uh, Dr. Maria Gimbutas, uh, who started this whole thing um, claiming that cultures that built Kurgans across the steppe were basically, uh, were all related, spoke a common language, worshipped a sky god, a male god, and uh, they, they invaded what was called Old Europe, which believed in um, female fertility gods and so on, fertility goddesses, rather. And um, that they overran Europe and, uh, you know, imposed their culture and language on it, which in the 1960s, 70s, you know, sort of riding on a wave of uh, second wave feminism, it became very popular. And that sort of is the, um, I, 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 that's, became, you know, the, the basis of the received wisdom of the step hypothesis. Anyway, so here's a Kurgan. Um, step hypothesis supporters believe, claim that building Kurgans was a sign of common culture, civilization, and importantly, language. But signs of material culture. So if you dig inside Kurgans, which they have a lot, if you, you find that the way that the bodies are buried in there, the, the postures of the bodies, you know, are, are uh, adults buried together with children, are groups buried together, or they buried singly. You know, um, are the knees raised? Are they on their side? Are they on the back? Those differ from different areas of the steppe. And, um, you know, burial practices and grave goods. So they would often, you know, when they buried somebody in the Kurgan, they would uh, they would add various uh, items as either gifts for the god or, uh, you know, uh, something to honor the dead. And these grave goods also differ very strongly in from one area of the step to another. In fact, Anthony himself admits that there is no you know, single material culture that uh, works across all of these step cultures. So like the kinds of pottery that are there, the kinds of decoration, what is included, it, it changes a lot. 
So the Kurgan could have been an innovation separately evolved by different cultures or functionally adopted across different step cultures independently of language. See, the step is a very flat, grassy uh, ter uh, terrain. So it would have been useful to have mounds like this because there are, there are no physical features otherwise. There are no hills, no mountains, no trees, nothing. So even to find your way as a landmark, it would make sense for these folks to you know bury their important uh, tribe members and then build a Kurgan around it so you can see it from far away. And this particular innovation, it just could have been borrowed among many different steppe tribes speaking different languages, you know, just because it's, it's a useful thing to do, just like most technologies are. You don't have to learn the full language or subscribe to the same culture in order to, um, you know, have adopted a single kind of technology. Okay. Then uh, you find that, so the claim again is that Afanasievo, you know, these uh, Yamnaya come all the way to this side, you know, which is 1300 km. Uh, well, actually, it's more than, you know, it's about 3000 km from the Yamnaya homeland. And uh, that this migration, and that's based on the fact that there are Kurgans here, there are Kurgans here. And also, there is ADNA here in uh, northern uh, East Turkestan um, that shares some step characteristics. It's called the Dzungarian area, Dzungaria. However, the actual Tokarian manuscripts are found quite far away from there. They're found in, um, you know, uh, this place in the Tarim Basin. So this is the second sort of little blow that um, the step hypothesis got, which is that in the Tarim Basin, where actually Tokarian language manuscripts are found, there are also some um, preserved mummies, you know, um, like human, human beings that are preserved. And from that, uh, from the Bronze Age, and this group, Zhang et al., have investigated those mummies, and they found that they have no genetic connection at all to the Yamnaya. So that was the second sort of, we talked about the horses, now the, the mummies um, of this culture. And so even though you find Kurgans up here and some amount of uh, steppe genetic ancestry up here, you don't find it here where the Tokarian manuscripts have been found. It's also interesting to note that it's not really a long way from, um, you know, northern India, this uh, place where the Tokarian manuscripts are found, or from Iran for that matter. Finally, wheels, okay? Again, we're trying to really steel man this. Uh, the step hypothesis supporters assign dates for Proto-Indo-European based on the idea that linguists can construct a PIE word for wheel, okay? So a pro PIE is Proto-Indo-European. So remember we saw, let's, let's go back and see that. So why 4,500 to 4,000 BC? Why, you know, why does it start at this time and not earlier than that? And the reason is that, um, um, the reason is that wheels did not exist before 4,000 BC at the earliest, per David Anthony, that nobody had wheels, that this, this was a new technology. So wheel transport, was not earlier than 4000 BC. So he claims that because PIE, Proto-Indo-European, has a word for wheel, it could not possibly be older than 4,500 BC. That's the claim. And then I've put down here some archaeological uh, evidence for wheels and wheeled vehicles. This is all from David Anthony's book. And it's uh, fair enough, you know. There's, uh, interestingly, the earliest one is not from pro Proto-Indo-European language. It's not from the steppe. It's from Mesopotamian clay tablets in 3500 to 3370 BCE, uh, where there's a written sign for wagon. There are drawings or images of wheels in uh, the Strictabeka culture in Poland from 3500 to 3350, uh, and a few other things, a clay model of a wagon in Baden culture, 
Then the remains of actual wagons, um, there's one from Switzerland in uh, 3200 uh, in near Zurich. And then in the steppe, you only find them from 3000 onwards, 3000 BC onwards. And, you know, it, uh, I haven't included that in the graph in, in the deck here, but uh, there are some, you know, the main claim of a wheeled vehicle that David Anthony makes is of this thing in the Sintashta, uh, which is in the Ural Mountains. And uh, there is a lot of uh, controversy about whether that's actually a chariot. David Anthony claims that it's a chariot, a horse-drawn chariot. There are uh, archaeologists like Litauer and Crowell who have really strongly disputed that. They say that it's basically just a wheelbarrow. It's some sort of a small thing where you, where you can, you know, uh, sort of pull things for a funeral, a ceremonial vehicle. So anyway, also it's important to note the Swiss vehicle has a, a different design than the step vehicle. So the step, Swiss vehicle has a revolving axle, the whole bar that, you know, connects the wheels that revolves, whereas in the step wagons had just the wheels revolve and the axle is fixed. Anyway, the point is that the step hypothesis rests on many contentious assumptions. Now we are getting into the Hegarty paper. This is all from the Hegarty um, um, supplementary material. It rests on many contentious assumptions linguistically. Firstly, there's this idea of linguistic paleontology, which is basically what we just talked about, that words reconstructed in Proto-Indo-European are claimed to have had specific meanings that did not change. So, for example, if a word for wheel existed in PIE, then PIE could only have been spoken after wheeled vehicles, wheel, wheel transport was invented. But this has never been demonstrated as necessarily true. I mean, this is just an assumption that all of David Anthony's work and all the derived work that comes from it is based on. So, in fact, the specific meaning of, of words shift, narrow, and broaden frequently within a general semantic area. Like, uh, for example, chakra, which we know on, uh, to mean wheel in Sanskrit, it can mean shape or it can mean create or grind or you mean dizzy, like, you know, the right word like chakarare, you know, so that's dizzy. So here are some examples from the Rig Veda that we've been reading. Um, so here's like Ugrastura Shara Vibhuti Yoja, Yathavasham Tanvam Chakra Eshaha. This is talking about how Indra used to shape his body in certain ways. You know, he used to change the shape, change his form using disguise. So here, chakra is a verb. It's not even a noun. It's it's talking about how he shapes his body. Um, then uh, another one. This is uh, Rigveda Mandala three fifty three seven. chakrama karambam. So like they're talking about grinding a gruel. So here also, uh, the word chakra obviously uh, is referring to the act of grinding, and you can see sort of descendants of this word even in sort of chakki chakki piece etc. And so. <clears throat> The point is that chakra did not always mean wheel in Sanskrit. So how can you assume that a word in Proto-Indo-European, like you know, this root has been um, this root has been reconstructed in PIE? I don't know how you say this quekolo, I guess. But words derived from that reconstructed root do not only mean wheel; they can also mean circle. They can mean a cycle, like a time, like in in time, like a seasons or a diurnal cycle, rotation, turning, all kinds of things in the related semantic field, in the general semantic area, then this is also important. Sometimes words are adapted to mean other things, such as through a process of calc. You know, what, what is calc? So, for example, mouse, like this is, a you know, um, mouse, computer mouse. This is called mouse in all kinds of languages, including Chinese, Korean, Japanese, and so on, where they have another word for the animal 
that's a mouse, right? So it's not like the word for the animal mouse. It, those languages have been adopted into mouse. They just adopted the English word for it. I mean, of course, English calls this a mouse because it looks kind of like a mouse. But, um, you know, that's not how the words evolved in those other languages. It's just calped. It's, ado it's adopted, borrowed, and uh, then it becomes part of these other language families entirely. Uh, you can have parallel derivations from a common existing word root could arise in different branches of language family to describe a new innovation or technology through patterns of word formation that persist in common across branches. Then there's another couple of assumptions. Uh, this I just wanted to present that, you know, a lot of... So the funny thing about David Anthony in particular is that a lot of uh, archaeologists will cite David Anthony on linguistics. A lot of linguists will cite David Anthony on archaeology. Um, so he sort of ducks and co covers between these very disparate uh, fields of expertise. But, uh, you know, um, it's kind of interesting that the Hegarty paper in their supplement has, you know, I, I just want to say I'm not a linguist. I'm not a trained linguist by any means. But all of these people are. And all of them are, you know, they're pretty harsh on David Anthony's assumptions for uh, linguistic paleontology. The whole idea that because the word that means wheel existed in Proto-Indo-European, therefore Proto-Indo-European can only have existed after 4500 BC. Okay, then a couple of other things. First, uh, a couple of other assumptions, glottochronology. What is glottochronology? That the rate of language uh, change is uh, assumed to be constant, more or less constant. That languages just change, you know, um, at a particular rate, no matter what the selective pressures or what the environmental pressures are. And David Anthony, in his book, uh, uses this to argue against a date of earlier than 4,000 to 4,500 BC for Proto-Indo-European. So David Anthony says that if PIE had been much older than that, it would have been, it would have branched out a lot more. It would have been bushy and many branched and mutually unintelligible. But actually, this is kind of a silly argument because language is not like the molecular clock of DNA. So DNA will accumulate random mutations and nucleotide substitutions in a pretty predictable manner, you know, as uh, Nai and other, you know, Kimura and other scientists have shown, you know, sometimes mutations just happen um, at, at, a, at a fairly predictable rate over time, just because of the thermodynamics of the molecule. Um, the rate of, and because of the error rate in, you know, DNA polymerases and so on. I mean, these things are built in to, uh, you know, DNA replication mechanisms to make sure that it happens, in fact, to sort of um, favor the idea that it happens. Um, however, but in language, they're not archaeobacterial genomes, right? For example, so rate of change can vary widely in different languages at different times under different circumstances. Are they encountering other cultures? Are they trading with other cultures? Are they traveling? Are they just isolated? All those things. So glottochronology is now pretty much discredited, but David Anthony has used it to argue against an earlier date than 4000. Then the Shatam and Rookie rules. What is this? So, um, these, this is again, I think uh, Dr. Elst has spoken about this in detail. So they are kind of controversial in linguistics and they're not hard and fast constraints for language classification. So Don Ringi, who is again the uh, sort of the godfather of uh, Indo-European linguistics in the step um, hypothesis group, he groups Armenian together with Greek. So what is Shatam? So uh, Shatam is, there's a bunch of Indo-European languages in which the word for 100 sounds like Shata like, you know, in Sanskrit and so on. And that includes Balto-Slavic, it includes Armenian and Indo-Iranian. And then in other languages like Greek, Italic, um, Celtic, and so on, 
the word for hundred sounds like kentum. Kentum. I think you know Dr. Elst explained this very well. So shatam and kentum. Um, but and the and the thought from uh, Don Ringi is that you know the groups that spoke the languages that uh, use the words that derive from shatam belong to one group. The words that the languages that that use words deriving from kentum belong to another group. But it's not very hard and fast. So. Um, for example, uh, Greco-Armenian, you see, e even though they're considered to be common, a common branch, you know, Armenian is Shatam, Greek is Kento. And similarly, there's something called the Ruki rule, which is retracting of S, retraction of S, following um, R, U, K, or E. So, like, you know, in some languages, S becomes SH if it follows these uh, syllables or these phonemes. And that is also uh, fraught with many full and partial exceptions. Sometimes um, they say that uh, it, it could have. It, it doesn't mean that there was a common branch that went off and all of them follow the rookie rule. It could be that the rookie um, kind of pronunciation occurs in some words and not others, and that evolved parallelly in separate branches rather than having been you know, inherited from a common ancestor. So, for a more technical discussion, you can see Hegarty at all, and this is a little bit important to keep in mind because you, you'll see how you know. This this sort of classification becomes um, you know sort of germane or becomes kind of relevant when we look at uh, the Hegarty paper and then we look at some of the genetic evidence laid out in Lazaridis. It's actually so remarkable that these two, two things coincide as well as they do. Okay, then uh, I wanted to say show this that um, one of the big things about that questions the step hypothesis is. Um, the one-way influence and borrowings from PIE, Proto-Indo-European and or Indo-Iranic, into Proto-Uralic languages. So what is that? So you had the Ural Mountains are right here. I've drawn it in Dave Anthony's map. The idea, the claim is that, okay, so, you know, this is the last branch coming out from uh, the Yamnaya. It's Balto-Slavic and Indo-Iranic. As it travels all the way here to India or Iran, it uh, sort of spends time in the vicinity of the Ural Mountains. Um, and this entirely different language family spoken in the Ural Mountains that eventually travels to Finland, it eventually travels to Hungary and other places. Um, it adopts a lot of the characteristics of uh, Proto-Indo-European, including borrowing a lot of words from them. So it's claimed that you know, step hypothesis people will say that, you know, um, this is a proof that uh, Indo-Iranian languages um, originated in the steppe and that they kind of interacted with the um, Uralic languages, which then trans traveled to the West. So, um, you know, the question, though, is if it did, it's assumed that this is because the ancestor of Indo-Iranic came into the West and South Asia from the steppe after they spent time, um, the original speakers spent time in the vicinity of the Ural Mountains and their peoples. But that doesn't explain why the borrowings would be one way. Okay, that's that's the really killer uh, aspect of this, is that if, you know, Indo-Iranic had spent time here, you would expect that they would also have learned or they would also have absorbed some things from the Uralic languages that are not found in any of these Indo-European languages. But they have not. You know, there's nothing in the Indo-Iranic languages after they supposedly came here that they borrowed from the Uralic languages. Even the Uralic languages have lots of things that were borrowed from Indo-Iranian. So what's going on? It's like clearly... Um, you know, it's a big weakness of the step hypothesis. So now we come to what did Hegarty et al. do? Hegarty et al., okay, so they're sort of um, uh, drishti, if you want. Um, it starts from, you know, um, 
Colin Renfrew, who in the 1990s or early 2000s came up with what he called the Anatolian hypothesis, which is an alternative uh, story of Indo-European. It's it's different from the steppe hypothesis. And he believes that, um, you know, Indo-European languages spread, I mean, started much earlier, and then they spread by a process called Debic diffusion, which, you know, which is just slow migrations of people and, you know, gradual influence, rather than, you know, these Yamnaya riding into villages and forcing people to learn the language or whatever it is that David Anthony believes, or, you know, uh, and that the main key to spreading things, spreading uh, Indo-European was uh, farming. So, you know, he calls the Fertile Crescent, which is Eastern Anatolia and uh, sort of the parts of um, the, the Euphrates, Tigris Valley. That's where he says that it belong, that it, that it began. So um, um, now this Hegarty at all, I mean, they start from his work. I mean, there's been earlier attempts to use sort of Bayesian uh, analysis to anal uh, to um, to provide a uh, structure for uh, Colin Renfrew's hypothesis by you know people like Gray and Atkinson in the early 2000s, but that is in turn coming for a lot of uh, criticism. But what Hegarty had all done have done is um, started a you know they've uh, conducted a new analysis which sort of addresses all the problems that plagued older analyses. So Hegarty et al. have performed a Bayesian phylogenetic analysis conducted on something called the IECOR database. What's that? The IECOR database is a database of what they call lexemes, which is they take 161 languages, Indo-European languages, and they have a reference set of 170 basic meanings. And um, in the, uh, the database contains um, data on relationships of cognacy, which is shared word origin between all of these. So IECOR uh, addresses major problems that undermine previous analyses, including by you know, Gray Atkinson and so on. First of all, poor data quality with gaps in coverage for some language families and for ancient versus modern languages. So that used to be a, a problem in earlier databases. Then inconsistent encoding, which is that the tolerance for multiple near synonyms in some languages, but not others. So like, you know, you can have, for example, sleeping, napping, whatever like that, you know, words like that, uh, that are almost very close, um, but not exact synonyms were tolerated more in some and not in others. Then you can't do this when you're doing comparative analysis. You can't, you know, over kind of over, uh, overburden one database and, and sort of have insufficient data on another. Um, or you will get distortions in the results. Then inadequate methodology to distinguish between words inherited from a common ancestor versus words horizontally transmitted or loaned across languages. All of these were problems in the I, that IECOR resolves. Then it includes a binary covariant model that allows for variable rates of language change. We talked about um, you know, glottochronology, the assumption that language changes at a constant rate. And uh, earlier analyses used um, what they call a Markov chain Monte Carlo uh, model, where the rate of change was just constant. You know, you assume that things had as much a likelihood to change as not. Whereas the binary covariant models uh, that they used has, I think, eight different rates, depending on whether there was more cultural impact or less, or, you know, um, more sort of impact on like, additional cultures and so on. And Importantly, the Hegarty model does not enforce direct ancestry relationships within Sanskrit uh, lang language families, as with many analyses that support the step hypothesis, for example, Sanskrit and Prakrits. 
I mean, I know many people are probably going to be a little bit upset. The fact is Sanskrit is not the mother language, according to these folks. Sanskrit is one of many. It's it's an aunt or an uncle. And in fact, it is an aunt or an uncle that never had children. You know, so it's like one branch that lists, like extends by itself. There are many Prakrits that are branched off earlier than Sanskrit and that gave rise to um, the modern in, in Indian language that we know today. It's It's related. Obviously, it's related. But... It's not like the mother language that starts off and becomes yeah. all. It's, it's going to break our hearts of all the chauvinists. Yeah. Otherwise, be normal people would not care about it. Yeah. So it, it doesn't enforce direct ancestry relationships within language families. As the step hypothesis, people do. Ironically, people should understand if they're going to defend the idea that Sanskrit is the mother language, what they're doing is going back toward you know, supporting the model that the step hypothesis support and the, uh, advances. So, uh, and then they have done lots of sensitivity analyses. So it's called a block jackknife approach where, you know, you remove some data and you see if your still results are, are still the same. You remove one or two items at a time um, from your sample and, you know, you're sure the robustness of results across multiple contingencies. And they've done that as well in this Hegarty et al. paper. So it's, it's, it's very robust. So this is what they come up with. And I'm just going to advance a little bit and show that. Look at the contrast. This is the uh, Don Ringy model of um, the, the step hypothesis people use. And you can see that it looks very much like a family tree of a human family tree. Like, you know, Dadaji had two children. Dadaji died in 2500. Then he had these two children and they had children. That's not how languages work. You know, languages don't just automatically split up and die. It's not, you know, they're not like people because they will only really die out if if the speakers just, you know, abandon them or if speakers themselves um, just cease to exist. They, they won't, it's not like they die and then their children take over, right? It's, very, it's This is kind of strange. What they found, in fact, is that, um, it, it, so what's a Bayesian analysis? First of all, a Bayesian analysis takes a prior assumption so, for example, if you have a prior assumption about, um, you know, traffic is is um, traffic is less bad on the weekends than on weekdays. So that's an example of a prior assumption. Then you add new data to the prior assumption. So, for example, you actually go out and you look at a traffic camera week after week and you uh, day after day and you, you actually count, you know, how bad the traffic is, or. Uh, you sort of enumerate that. And then you take the prior assumption and you do a conditional probability. Um, there's a formula there. And you figure out what the posterior assumption is, which is the reality. This is the this is the reality. So you can see they've started with a prior assumption, which is basically the same as a step hypothesis. 3000 to 4000 BCE is when Proto-Indo-European started. And then using all the data that they collected and the model that they piped them through, they find that the posterior assumption, the reality, is that it started much earlier than that. Start of Proto-Indo-European divergence was six. Well, I mean, yeah. So eight one two zero before present, which means around six thousand one hundred twenty BCE. So it's much earlier than that. Um, you see all these fuzzy areas they've blurred of relative uncertainty, and they say that they may reflect complex dialect continua, clusters of languages spoken in close proximity to each other. You see this in India all the time, right? I mean, you have Hindi. The truth is, you know, you are Hindi and my Hindi, we can understand each other. But, you know, they, they are actually, if a linguist examined the way you speak Hindi and I speak Hindi, it would be very different. 
they would find very different characteristics in them. And even in rural India, I mean, you have this entire, you have Maithili, you have, uh, you know, Bhojpuri, you have Khadiboli, all these dialects. They they can understand each other. So they're not completely separated yet, you know, but they are in linguistic terms, actually in the process of branching out to being different languages. And they may in a thousand years, or they may not, because standard Hindi is being advanced by, you know, government structures and in government schools. So there are all these factors that come into play. So that's what they found. Now, this is really interesting. Uh, so many Indo-European language families coexisted simultaneously for long periods of time as opposed to branching off in, a su in succession from a single stem of course, core PIE, which we looked at the uh, step model. And it's consistent with the spread by demic diffusion, which is slow movement of people and, uh, you know, uh, fact of interactions between cultures. There's nothing dramatic about this. It's not like, you know, some Aryans just ride in from the step and force everybody in the Indus Valley to speak Sanskrit, which is slightly ridiculous. Anyway, then this is what I wanted to point out. So I call these things, Srikant Thadakere in his book talks about isoglosses. He talks about groups of languages which actually don't line up so well with the step hypothesis model. Okay. But they do line up very well with Hegarty's model. Very told you Srikant Telegiri was the greatest thing that, yeah. that came when it comes to this subject. I told you. I know Srikant yeah. sir has made me a blog, mein, but I still love him and his work. But I told you Telegiri's internal chronology and his work on that subject is picture perfect. It is perfect. It is it's astounding how well it lines up. So, you know, for example, he says that, you know, this, so what are these isoglosses? They are, so Telegiri ji, um, he posits an out-of-India model. He says that one group that went out of India uh, spoke a certain set, set of Indo-European languages that became the first isoglosses, and the second set became the second isoglosses, right? So you can see that the way that they're related here, it really confirms to that. So the second isoglosses include Armenian, Greek, Indic, and Iranic. And then the first isoglosses, which he mentions, exactly, you know, Slavic, Baltic, Italic, Germanic, and Celtic. So they're the first to come out. And this is this matches it exactly. Exactly. It's, it's stunning. And you can see that the, the contrast is. So here, you know, I, so he, in the uh, Don Ringi model, Italo-Celtic and Germanic and Albanian are one group, whereas Balto-Slavic is forced uh, into, um, in, into a separate branch along with Indo-Iranian and Greco-Armenian. So it's kind of, uh, you know, it... it, it it con this con this model contradicts Talagiri G, but this con this model um, completely validates him, which is a anyway. Now we come to what is a what can a DNA tell us, right? Ancient DNA. Um, there's a few things to just remember, which is first of all, genes don't carry language. You hear a lot of these people on on like social media talking about R1A of all things. We can at best assess potential compatibility of linguistic and genetic records with various scenarios for prehistory. That's the best we can hope to do. You know, compatibility, we can assess correlation. There is no causation between genes and language. It can never be assumed that that uh, linguistic and genetic lineages will match one-on-one. -on -one. This is all from uh, Hegarty's paper, by the way. Again. Linguistic and genetic ancestries can be correlated only if a language lineage spreads by demographic expansion through geographical space. So literally... This is the most important point. This is the most important point. Yeah, it's it's ex extraordinarily important. And the truth is, 
this is not the case in, in you know people just assume that this is how language is spread most of the time it's not the case in most instances so for example language shift can occur through all other cultural mechanisms where pre-existing populations remain in place but switch over time to a different language lineage for example urdu in southern india they're all you know genetically you know southern indian you know people in hyderabad people in karnataka kerala and so on they start speaking urdu but they're doing it for cultural reasons similarly you can talk about um, people who spoke uh, started speaking indo-european languages sanskrit and so on in southeast asia you know they, they used to speak austroasiatic or uh, sino-tibetan languages but after the chola um, expansion they started speaking sanskrit they didn't change the uh, genetic ancestry at all uh, languages can persist despite ongoing genetic admix admixture that eventually washes out the ancestry of those who introduced them to an area in the first place. So in Hungarian, you know, uh, you, you, if you test, you know, Hungarian genetic ancestry, it's not at all different from their neighbors. It's very similar to Germanic and Slavic and all those people. But they speak a different language that came from the Magyars, which is a Uralic language. They don't speak an Indo-European language. And in fact, even despite population replacement, like in uh, Osha, in Vanuatu, the um, they have an oceanic language, which was not introduced by those genetic people at all, by, by the genetic ancestors of the current speakers at all. You know, it was somebody else that brought it there. There is no single genetic profile consistent with Indo-European languages. Indo-European languages are spoken from, uh, at least initially, they were spoken from Iceland to Bengal or to Sri Lanka. You know, there's a vast area. There is no common genetic profile that consistent with all of them. This is the key from there. This is from uh, the um, Renfrew paper. Um, the only realistic approach, the only realistic approach is to attempt to identify at least one partial ancestry, partial ancestry component, significant in most or all populations that speak Indo-European languages. So that would act as a tracer die. You know, like when uh, you do a PET CT scan, they give you a tracer dye, like, you know, fluorodeoxyglucose or something like that, which can then, it'll accumulate in cancer cells and not in normal cells. So that's the kind of the metaphor they're using. Uh, a tracer dye through populations in time and space that you can kind of track that could potentially have been a candidate because it's um, correlated with Indo-European languages. So what is, this is important now because we're talking about the Lazaridis paper, what is the optimal tracer dye? What is an ideal tracer dye for Indo-European languages? Again, Hegarty and Renfrew proposed two candidates. One is the ancestral pro uh, profile of the uh, Yamnaya culture that we've been talking about from the steppe, uh, on the Pontic-Caspian steppe from 3000 BC onwards. It's a roughly equal admixture of two ancestries. One is East European hunter-gatherers, which is originally dominant on the steppe, and Caucasian hunter-gatherer or Caucasus hunter-gatherer, CHG. So if they have equal volumes of this and this, that's what, for example, um, Narasimhan and even before him, Lazaridis and all these folks have used to trace um, population movement based again on uh, Anthony's paradigm. The other candidate is just the CHG component alone, Caucasus hunter component, you know, without uh, involving the step uh, EHG, right? This is found south of the Caucasus, but from 5000 BC on, it is also in the Pontic-Caspian steppe. So it went from south of the Caucasus to the steppe from 5000 BC onwards. It is also found, this is the killer, it's also found in Anatolia at the time of Indo-European speaking Hittites. But the Hittites don't have any trace of this steppe 
ancestry, which is um, EHG. You know, they only have CHG. And it has remained high in Indo-Iranic speakers throughout history, and it's still high to this day, you know. So these are the two candidates, and we are going to evaluate them a little bit, each of them. First of all, let's look at the Yamna ancestry, which he said is basically equal amounts of EHG and CHG. You do get decent ADNA correlation between the spread of Indo-European languages into Europe and Yamna ancestry into Europe. You know, this is a Hark Lazaridis et al. Who, uh, you know, they did this paper in um, the Rye Lab in 2015. They do find that there's massive population replacement, you know, um, or you know, at least this, uh, this you know, clear signs of uh, genetic ancestry being replaced in Europe in this uh, particular era that coincides with the Yamna horizon. It's fine, you know, we we don't have any argument with that. Then in 2019, Naras Narasaman, you know, his paper. Um, it actually shows a rather poor ADNA correlation between the spread of the claimed spread of Indo-Iranic into India and genetic ancestry coming into India. I mean, people have tried to, you know, lots of apologists have written things like, you know, this is settle the RN. It doesn't do anything of the kind. It doesn't, you know, quite honestly. And we'll take a look at why. Um, you know, the earlier model was that it came through the BMAC, that uh, you know, that that's what David Anthony proposed, that it came through the what is the BMAC? It's the um, uh, Bactria Margiana archaeological complex, which is here in Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, etc. That that's how uh, this ancestry came to India, and along with its language, they Narasimhan at all actually found that it did not come through there because the BMAC ancestry is very different from the one that came to India, steppe ancestry. And so he has, you know, posited this entire route where it comes through the Pamir Mountains, um, what he calls the Inner Asian Mountain Corridor. It's pretty circuitous. But what's really been a killer is this Lazaridis at all, you know, these three Southern R papers. They've shown that for Greek, Armenian, and Anatolian, the ADNA correlation of steppe ancestry, of Yamaya ancestry, and Indo European languages is either poor or completely absent. So it's actually stuck a death blow, in my view, to the steppe hypothesis by doing so. So, first of all, let's look at why we say that in India, you know, uh, or at least why I, I would say that in India, uh, the Narasaman at all um, evidence doesn't really support the introduction of steppe ancestry very strongly. So what do you see here? So this is from, you know, it's uh, hidden away in uh, page 265 of uh, Narasaman's supplementary material. This is an actual admixture plot. So it's showing the different amounts of ancestry in a large bunch of samples. So these three ancestries were already present in the Indus Valley. Nobody argues with that. You know, there's uh, Iran, uh, Iran Neolithic, uh, which they call Gansare. There is a uh, West Siberian hunter-gatherer, and there is um, Andamanic, uh, Andamanese hunter-gatherer. You can see, like for example, this guy here. This guy uh, has, you know, the um, ASI. He has the orange, and he has uh, what do you call it? Uh, Iranian Neolithic, which is the major component, and he's from Gonur, so he's one of the outlier Indus periphery samples that they found. Okay, or maybe a woman. I'm sorry, I'm saying guy. But anyway, that's that's what they uh, that's what an Indus Valley ancestry looks like: just orange, green, and red uh, components. These are the markers of steppe MLBA, MLBA meaning uh, mid to late Bronze Age ancestry, according to Vagish. The Anatolia, Neolithic, and West European hunter-gatherer ancestry. And you can see actually how small it is. 
you know, look at all these samples, all the way. These are the uh, Iron Age samples that, you know, from 1195 BC onwards, he claims to have found in um, the Swat Valley prehistoric graves. Look at the actual amount of blue. It's very, very small. Okay. You get a little bit more blue when you come into um, the historical era, which is the, you know, Saidu Sharif and uh, Butkara and so on. But now you're talking about the time when, you know, uh, Alexander and all came, you know, the Greeks uh, had, had intruded into this area. The um, Shakas had come, the Huns had come, all of their ancestors had come. So Scythians and so on. So this is, is, is more than it was before. But there's no basis for saying that this ancestry was the same as this root of ancestry that you're seeing in the early Iron Age and so on. And on which the Narasimhan claims are, are uh, made which basis they're made. So what exactly has happened here? So Narasimhan at all claimed that the results show a significant intrusion of steppe MLB ancestry into India up in 1500 BC. But what they've done is basically they've just built a model. They, what they've said is, you see this tiny amount of steppe ancestry here, you know, compared to the orange, red, and green, it's tiny. They say that this could have happened. This is, a, this is the operative word. It could have happened because in our model, we have, uh, you know, the Indus Valley periphery people on one side. On the other side, we have a population, which they have never found, by the way. They've never found this population. We have a hypothetical population, which is 41% steppe ancestry. And if that 41% steppe ancestry population had kind of invaded or, you know, started intermarrying with the Indus Valley population, then you would potentially be able to get this kind of result. Okay. Is it the only way that you could get, get this kind of result? No, it's just one model. Is it the most likely way in which you could get this kind of result? No, unless you believe in the step hypothesis. So you see how this is completely circular reasoning. Their model, historical model, and you can see David Anthony is one of the uh, authors of that paper. Their model is based on the idea that the step hypothesis is true, and then it further validates the model itself. It's completely circular. And... Uh, in fact, they have found, the other researchers have found that most steppe ancestry present in India did not come from an intrusion of steppe MLBA, which uh, Manalasaman proposes in 1500 BC, but likely from different sources and later intrusions. So from the, like we were saying, from the, you know, the Greeks, the Shakas, the Hunas, uh, Scythians, and so on. And it's also supported by Hani et al. Nature um, study of um, Rukun Lake samples. It's very inconsistent with the Aryan migration theory scenario of 1500 BCA. So this is, you know, uh, just as a reminder, genetic analysis often suffers from the problem of statistical identifiability. There is actual mathematics published to show this. Several models fit the da available data equally well. So Narasimhan and all had proposed one model based on the idea that, the, you know, the, uh, David Anthony is one of their co-authors. But Actually, many other models can fit the same available data equally well. It can lead to incorrect interpretations of history and make confidence intervals unrealistically narrow. So this is that famous story of the six blind men and the elephant. You know, the data that they're looking at is telling them something based on the model that they already have in mind. So this guy is looking at the trunk. Oh, it feels just like a snake. Oh, this elephant must be a snake. You know, this guy is uh, looking at the leg of the elephant and saying, oh, he has already have a preconce he already has a preconceived notion. And all that the data is doing is confirming his bias about that. It, it's a tree trunk, you know, and so on. Karthik, but to be fair, 
दैट इक्वली अप्लाइज टू पीपल लाइक मी और यू फॉर दैट मैटर हुटिकल ऑफ द स्टेप हाइपोथिस टू राइट फेर इन it's very that's very true that's why we're looking at multiple streams of data right that's why we're looking yeah. at for example lazarinus as well as um um hegarty for example <clears throat> so again yamnaya ancestry is a tracer die this the bottom line is hegarty 2023 even admits this it's too little too late in south and central asia the amount that vagish narasimhan shows coming into india in 1500 bc is too little to have you know brought into european languages and it comes too late so now let's look at the other candidate so we looked at the amaya ancestry now we're looking at chg caucasus hunter gatherer ancestry first of all what is caucasus hunter gatherer now this is the spread of indo iranic languages it is huge right it is a gigantic area where people speak indo uh, iranic languages or indo iran um, branch of indo european languages goes all the way from sri lanka to like armenia azerbaijan is all in this language sub family of proto indo european indo iranic right i mean the claim from narasimhan the claim from david anthony and all these step people is that a small let's look at it again okay this blue and this blue brought these indo iranian languages to this entire area and you know and that it brought, even though there's so much differentiation in indo iranian languages it brought that whole thing only in 1500 bc not earlier than that so that's the claim again what um, you know uh, the, the way that uh, this has been phrased by hegarty and renfrew is that the only realistic approach is to attempt to identify at least one partial ancestry component significant in most or all populations that speak indo european languages so a tracer die through populations in time and space so we're looking at uh, caucasus hunter gatherer uh, hunter gatherer ancestry as a tracer die what does it look like okay look at that this is from the prushaki et al paper 2016 okay the blue triangle here is vesme cave which is zagros it's iranian neolithic dna and the blue circles are genetic affinities of populations to iranian neolithic so you can see that basically it overlaps almost exactly the same area again genes are correlated they're not causative genes don't carry language but if you are looking for a correlation this is a million times better than anything to do with the step right you see caucasus hunter gatherer ancestry is all over the place here on almost exactly the same uh, belt that speaks indo indo iranian languages so who is this caucasus hunter gatherer ancestry chg that lazarides talks about it is the same as the iranian neolithic ancestry that you know narasimhan and earlier papers have talked about you know iranian neolithic is from a cave called ganjdari it's it's about uh, 60 kilometers away from the vesme cave which we had showed in this in this diagram so that's the vesme cave ganjdari is about 60 kilometers away from it it's about it's pretty much the same people um and in uh, one of the lazarides papers they've they've done a sort of a principal components admixture plot where they've shown that basically you can replace chg with ganjdare and you get essentially the same result there's small differences but it's the same result so they're basically the same people okay caucasus and gatherer and iranian neolithic here's a correlation plot again from um, uh, these folks from lazarides et al you can see that the correlation is is very high it's uh, 0.91 r squared and uh, with a p value of 10 to the minus 7 so they're basically the same people you know represent the same source of ancestry the ganjdari and 
Iranian Olympic and Caucasus hunter-gatherer. This is really important to keep in mind. CHG is Iranian Neolithic. Next step we're going to take is that Iranian Neolithic is the same as Indo-Iranian. It's equally valid to call it Indo-Iranian as to call it Iranian. This is from Vasan Shindeji's paper in 2019. You can see that there was, um, you know, he's, he's actually traced how the Indus Valley population was formed. This is the Rocky Gadi paper, right? So he started off by saying that there was a lineage split of the OG, the, origi- uh, the people who were original Indo-Iranians. They have descendants of both India and Iran, and there's no data right now as to where they lived, but the lineage kind of split off in 10,000 BC or before. And the IVC people are descended, Indus Valley people are descended directly from this node. So it is as likely to be Indian as Iranian. Okay. You, in fact, you see that by the Bronze Age, this Iran N, so-called Iran Neolithic ancestry, is equal or greater component in Indians. It is more of it in Indians compared to Iranians. The Iranians actually have, you know, uh, have actually got some Anatolian farmer ancestry by this point. But Indians are 50 to 98 percent you know, of this uh, CSG ancestry with varying admixture of Andamanese hunter-gatherers or ASI. So here I just wanted to show this again. Um, you know, Talagiri first and second isoglosses. This is the time depths that they have in Hegarty et al. for the Indo-European language families. We'll come back to this because we're going to lay it against the Lazarus findings. But uh, you can see again that Balto-Slavic and, uh, has been grouped together with Italic-Germanic-Celtic in uh, in Hegarty, which is the same as exactly what Talagiriji says. And, uh, you know, again, Indo-Iranic, Greco-Armenian are grouped together. So, again, everything here is validating Talagiriji's um, view of the isoglossus. So, what did Lazaridis and all do in 2022? The Southern Arc papers. So, they looked at five different ancestral populations in this entire area, what they used to be called Asia Minor. So, um, they are the... Caucasus hunter-gatherer that we've been talking about all this time that goes all the way to India, right? And they don't actually show a map that goes all the way to India, but it does. And it's, in fact, the major component in India even today. Even today. Um, there is uh, 11 people who are sort of from the area, from, uh, you know, Syria and uh, Mesopotamia. Anatolian hunter-gatherers from what is now Turkey. This is the Serbian hunter-gatherers from what's called the Iron Gates um, site. And they are sort of, they're representative of, um, you know, what David Anthony called old Europe, which is like the Chris culture and so on. People who were there before the Yama steppe ancestry came in there. And um, in the steppe, Eastern hunter-gatherers, East European hunter-gatherers, or EHG. So we're going to look at now the results of um, Lazaridis et al. And how, you know, they line up with the results of Hegarty et al. And it's remarkable. So we're starting with Anatolia. Anatolia, you know, before 6000 BCE, what was the situation? You had mostly Anatolian hunter-gatherers and some Levantine people in uh, Anatolia. And of course, to the east of that, in either Armenia, Iran, India, places to the, uh, you had CHG as the dominant ancestry. This is pre-6000 BCE. From 6000 BCE onwards until at least 4000 BCE, you have a migration, a massive migration of CHG people into Anatolia. Okay. That results in this Anatolian population being formed from 4500 to 1300 BC. This is pretty much the appearance of the Anatolian population. So it's like, again, CHG is the major component, 
there's almost equal amounts of Anatolian Neolithic and then a small amount of um, Levantine. Okay, that's what speaks Anatolian. Note that there is no step in this at all, at all. Okay, and Anatolian language uh, is, is an Indo-European language. Now let's look at uh, the Hegarty results against this. So pi, the median time depth of when PIE was spoken was 6120 BC. So surely 6000 BC around then, people are speaking, Proto-Indo-European. There's a split between PIE and Anatolian around around 5000 BC. 4932 is the figure they give. Um, so there was a split between PIE and Anatolian. So that actually perfectly matches the time when this population was beginning to form. And there's a divergence in Anatolian. That, that doesn't really matter for our purposes. That's when diverge, uh, Anatolian then diverges into its daughter languages like, uh, you know, Luvian and Hittite and all of those. That happens only in 2600. But you can see that this is the, definitely the population spoke Anatolian, right? <clears throat> That's number one. Now let's look at the steppe. Who is in the steppe? EHG, East European hunter-gatherers, right? This is a group of people that are, actually come from the forest steppe zone, um, Kalinsk, Samara, and places like that. So you have the EHG folks that are originally there. There is a massive influx, a massive influx. Like, you know, this is like, it completely dwarfs what you see in, you know, the steppe DNA coming to India. A massive influx of this Indo-Iranian DNA going into the steppe. They go into the steppe from 5500 BC onwards until at least 3500 BC, okay? And what do you get as a result of that? The Yamnaya start to form. What is the Yamnaya? They're basically half PHG, half EHG. Okay. So that's how much of the CHG, Indo-Iranian DNA, went into the steppe from the south. This cannot be said often enough. Then from 3500 BC onwards, this population also starts to go to the steppe. Okay. So... These admixed uh, populations from Anatolia, from Uruk, from Bronze Age Iran, they also start going. And, and so you start getting all these other signatures also in there. But remember that this population formed in the first place because of the Anatolian influx of CHG, right? And this is uh, it is masked because uh, at, from this point on, it's just, uh, this is kind of a, uh, it's, it's a limitation of ADNA and analysis at this uh, level of resolution. You can't tell whether this blue population, is it coming from this or from this? Is it pure CHG going in there or is it this CHG that's already admixed? It's not always easy to tell um, unless your, uh, you know, your analysis is sort of geared to finding that out. You do find that you have, you know, um, Indian cotton at this point. This is called the Uruk expansion era, uh, 3500 BC onwards. You do find Indian cotton here in my copy, even David Anthony um, admits this. Um, and so there's definitely a clear convergence of these cultures from um, Armenia, Iran, all the way to India, you know, Indus Valley. And um, this, these influxes just keep going on. Finally, you get the Yamnaya. And just look at these Yamnaya. The Yamnaya are basically half Indo-Iranian. Basically. I mean, they're about 40-45% Indo-Iranian. 45% or so um, ESG. And then the remaining small bits of Levantine and uh, Anatolian Neolithic, right? So that's who the Yamnaya is that carries. So we, we, we've been looking for Yamnaya ancestry in India. That's what Narasimhan does. Like, look at the Indo-Iranian ancestry in the Yamnaya. 
it's crazy, right? Now, then what happens? The Amnaya then travel to the Balkans to Northwest Europe. This is the part of the uh, step hypothesis that we shouldn't probably have any argument with because it is attested in the ADNA, right? That they traveled over there and probably took the uh, Italic, Celtic, and uh, uh, Germanic languages into Europe. And let's look again, look at uh, the Hegarty results. The split of the uh, what I call ST1 isoglosses, which is Balto Slavic, Italic, Germanic, Celtic, from PIE 4981 BCE. So that probably happened here, you know. Then the Balto Slavic to Italic, Germanic, Celtic split is 4465, you know, Balto Slavic split away from the other three. This is actually really interesting. That then Italic and Germanic Celtic actually seems to differentiate after 3500, which means it probably differentiated in the steppe or you know during the Yamna expansion into Europe. Uh, Italic emerges at 3564, Germanic Celtic at uh, 2889, and the divergence between Baltic and Slavic languages happens much later. You know, between Baltic and Slavic languages, it happens only in 1663 BCE. You know, so. What this seems to suggest is that when Baltic Balto-Slavic split off from these three, okay, Balto-Slavic remained here, whereas Italic, Germanic, Celtic went off here in the maybe in the first wave of expansions into the steppe. So Italic, Germanic, Celtic differentiate earlier. Balto-Slavic remains here, and maybe that's why. Remember, we talked about the Shatam and Ruki rules, you know, the aspects that it absorbed from Indo-Iranic. That's why, because it remained here and it was in close proximity to Indo-Iranic. Again, this is again Tadegeriji's hypothesis. Okay, Balto-Slavic picks up things like the Shatam and Ruki rule, and it probably picks up also Indo-Indo-Iranic vocabulary that eventually then it transmits into the steppe and to the Uralic languages. So this model explains a lot of things that the steppe hypothesis does not. Okay, now let's look at Greece. Who is in Greece? Pre-6000 BC, the major population in Greece is this is, is, uh, Serbian uh, hunter-gatherers or this, uh, you know, um, sort of old Europe um, population. And in Anatolia at that time, 6000 BC, it's almost pure, you know, Anatolian uh, Neolithic, this yellow group. From 6000 to 4000 BC, which is about the same time when the CHG folks are coming into Anatolia itself, you see the Anatolian Neolithic folks going into Greece and completely decimating this population. Just look at this, right? This is the major population here. It decimates that population and then it becomes that much. So this is what an invasion looks like. Okay, this is what a real invasion and population replacement looks like. You don't see anything like this in the Indus Valley or anywhere. You know, if there was an actually an Aryan invasion, you would get this kind of a result. And then you find even more influx of the CHG, Anna, uh, Anatolian, and uh, Levantine, which is admixed from 4500 4, onwards. And they continue going in there, into Greece. Do take a note that there's a small amount of uh, EHG, which is already present in Greece from the beginning. Huh? EHG, already present in Greece. So here they come. And then from 3000 BCE onwards, yes, there's possibly there was some step influx into Greece as well. But it's actually not that detectable because the steppe already exists in Greek ancestry. So again, it's masked. 
And so you get finally this kind of a result in Greece, where it's like majority is Anatolian. The second largest component is CHG from Indo-Iranian, a um, little bit of Anato of uh, Levantine, and very small trace amounts of uh, you know of uh, EHG and Serbian that still remain there. Now let's look at again Hegarty's results. The PIE to Greek Armenian, in this, uh, this is the second isoglosses of Tadagiriji. Um, the split happens at 4135 BCE, which is again consistent with this group coming in there. You know, the split between Greek and Armenian happens in 3310 BCE, and Greek diverges into its constituent languages from 1364 BCE onwards. That's the um, readings from the Hegarty analysis. Now, finally, let's look at Armenia itself. Who is in Armenia? Basically, the same people that are going through Armenia. Some of them stay behind them. So, you know, either the pure Caucasian hunter-gatherers or this admixture of Levantine and uh, Anatolian and Caucasian hunter-gatherer from here. So either from here or from here, you know, that's the majority of the population in Armenia at this time. There is a small influx from the steppe from 2000 BC onwards. You know, some of these Yamnaya folks also start going into Armenia, but it's very small, just very similar again to our, uh, in India, what you see in the Swat Valley. Uh, and it's very late, which is 2000 BC onwards. So it's too late to really have brought any Indo-European language there. Um, and this is the final picture of Armenian. You can see, again, the majority of them are, uh, majority of the ancestry there is uh, Caucasian hunter-gatherer. Their second largest is uh, Anatolian. And then little bits of uh, Levantine and steppe ancestry. And uh, so it's similar to the steppe ancestry signal in India and Greece. This last, this uh, influx of the uh, steppe ancestry to Armenia is late, weak, and confined to the local vicinity. It doesn't go beyond Armenia. It doesn't spread into Turkey. It doesn't spread into Greece. Nowhere. I mean, at least at this time in, in the ADNA. So... This is a table I made, and I don't know. I can we can make a PDF of this and distribute it if you want. This is I'm I'm, you know, this is not to scale, obviously, but I've kind of tried to put together all the various things that happened, and then the various linguistic results from um, uh, Hegarty et al. at the bottom, so we can maybe uh, take a look at a few of these things. So it starts from you know the earliest. Um, you know, it starts from pre-6000. Obviously, this is not to scale because, you know, some of these uh, intervals are much, there's much more information about them than others. So it's it's not like this length is to scale, but it's just approximate. Uh, you have Mergard and Virana starts at, you know, pre-6000. Uh, you have Gobekli, Tepe, and certain other things that uh, exist in other, you know, in Anatolia and so on. Uh, around 5500 BC is when IVC forms per Kenoya. That's the earliest date that we have. This could be when the Ida tribes form and uh, the first, um, you know, the, the group of people from India or from uh, Indo-Iran speaking, um, the first isoglosses of uh, described by Shri Kanthalagiri come out from there, actually matches this quite well. You know, um, ST2 to PIE, uh, Indo-Iranian branching off from ST2 um, and uh, Anatolian uh, diverging from PIE. Then, uh, per Hegarty and Renfrew, in, in another paper of theirs, they've said that IVC basically starts Indus Valley civilization. By the way, Hegarty and Renfrew make no bones about it. According to them, Indus Valley civilization is an Indo-European speaking civilization. 
Okay. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to add to this because I think that was like a big, you know, in, in our language, we'll say a big hathoda on mm. all these, uh, you know, uh, dreams of people who believe in the, not Aryan migration, Aryan invasion, especially like yeah. because they, especially those people who made these fantastic conclusions that hello, the Dravidian speaking people were the IVC people like, okay, then go fight with Paul Hegarty now. Yeah, there is absolutely no basis for believing that the indus Valley people spoke Dravidian languages. Absolutely not. I mean, that is the complete fantasy. That is, uh, you know, it's it's speculation entirely. There are people like McAlpin and so on who say that there was some relationship between the Elamite kingdoms of uh, Iran and the Indus Valley, and therefore they must have spoken. But it's all complete conjecture. It's all speculation. There is no evidence, no data for this for this to be true. And then again, between 5,000 and 4,000, you see the kind of Druyu exodus. I mean, I'm calling it a Druyu exodus just for fun. Uh, by Srikant Talagiriji. Uh, that comes out and... Uh, sorry, give me a second. Sorry. Okay. So, uh, that, that comes out from, um, you know, Indo-Iran, that area. In 4,000 to 3,000, you have the Uruk expansion, which is the first sort of expansion of, um, you know, trade that's recorded and, you know, urbanization in Mesopotamia. According to people like, uh, you know, others, uh, people like Pozel and other scholars of IVC, this is um, when early IVC begins, only around uh, 30 to 3,500. But, it's, you know, this is interesting, is that the Saraswati River becomes rain-fed. You know, it used to be a perennial river. But between 3,800 to 3,200, according to Michel Danino, this is when the Saraswati River becomes rain-fed. So it's getting less water straight from the mountains from its tributaries, which are the Drishatvati and uh, the uh, Shutudri, right? The Shutudri is being pirated off uh, into the Indus River as a Satlaj, and the Drishatvati is being pirated off into the Yamuna at this point. And because of that, one can... This is really interesting. The Indo-Iranian split happens right around this time. Okay? Indian and Iranic languages split right around this time as the Saraswati River is becoming rain-fed. The Rig Veda talks about a lot of these, you know, the Sarajna war and so on. I'm speculating here, obviously, you know, but is this the middle of this millennium, around 3,500, 3,600? Is this the time when there was more competition in the Indaswari area for uh, water because there's less water available? Is this the time when the, Ind the Indic and Iranic tribes are becoming uh, sort of separate from each other? There's more hostility, the Sarajna and so on. Um, and the Anus are moving away, as Srikanthalagiri ji describes. Are, are they moving to Iran around this time? Things kind of line up. Again, you know, I'm you know, ca I'm casting lines into the air, but uh, that's what basically everyone in this field seems to do. So I don't think that we should, you know, be shy about speculating in our own right. Then 3000 to 2000, the Yamnayas expanded to Europe, uh, the Sumerians and Akkadians from 2750 onwards. Saraswati is fully dry by 2000, okay? And maybe, uh, again, this is interesting. So, Indic languages start to diverge around 2500 BC. Indic language. So, within, you know, the Indo-Iranian, you know, Indic and Iranian split at 3500. Indic starts to diverge at 2500. Why? Is it because ISVC has started to expand 
towards the Ganga and therefore, you know, started to differentiate into various tribes that are speaking slightly different uh, languages, you know, different Prakrits, if you like, by this period, 2500. Um, then what happens from 2000 to 1000 is that, you know, you see Balto-Slavic, uh, you know, this is this is kind of cool because, you know, Balto-Slavic spread, like, look at this. Balto-Slavic in Srikanthalikiri's first isoglosses split from Italic, Greek, Celtic, all the way back here, around 50, uh, 4500 BC. But Baltic and Slavic between them split only here, 2000 to 1000. So that kind of implies that this Balto-Slavic group became remained as one language all this time, and it only came to the step at this time, right? Because otherwise, why did it, why did it differentiate after so many millennia? Okay. You also find that at around this time, 2000 to 1000 BCE, there's a lot of kingdoms and civilizations that are falling or declining and falling. So like the Hittites fall, Mycenae, Egypt, uh, Indus Valley falls, okay, late in the millennium. Um, and this could be because a lot of steppe people start coming out of the steppe, you know, and because of some I don't know, climatic event or something that happened in the steppe. And they start coming out to all these regions. It'll become clearer as we sort of start looking at some maps. So I've got a few maps here to show. So again, this, I mean, and I want to make this very clear. From this point onwards, this is not Hegarty. This is not Lazaridis. This is my speculation only. You know, this is my speculation only of what could have happened. And, uh, you know, but it's based on the data that I've read from them. So who is there? Um, uh, we have, um, you know, EHGs, you know, uh, East European hunter-gatherers in uh, the Eurasian steppe, uh, which is the Yamnaya and so on. Uh, I mean, well, they're half of the Yamnaya, as we found out later. The other half is from Indo-Iranic. We have Anatolian hunter-gatherers in um, this area. We have the Levantine folks here in Arabia, you know, and uh, Syria and so on. We have West Siberian hunter-gatherers. This is important to realize that in, even in the steppe, there are many different ancestries. There's not one steppe ancestry. You have East European hunter-gatherers on this side of the Urals. You have West Siberian hunter-gatherers on this side. And then on this side, further on, you have East Siberian hunter-gatherers also, which I've not shown you. Then in this, which I'm, you know, I've drawn this here. I don't know if you want to call it India, Iran, or what. I mean, it includes Afghanistan, Pakistan. I've drawn in all the rivers here of the, um, you know, the Saraswati. Uh, and as well as the Indus and its tributaries and the Ganga, Ganga Yamuna. And over here, you have the AASI, which is the ancient ancestral South Indians, which could be, you know, uh, related to uh, Andamanese hunter-gatherers, but they're not exactly South Indian either. They probably came all the way north into the Ganga Valley themselves. Okay. Now, what happens? First event, some migration from here brings Anatolian to Turkey, right? This is the this is in the order that it happened. Next event, the uh, Tulagiri one isoglosses. Okay, Balto Slavic and Italic Germanic Celtic leave from this this PIE homeland, and they travel west. Uh, Balto Slavic remains a unified branch south of the Caucasus, so we've shown it's broken for longer than Italic Germanic Celtic. Celtic, sorry, it is influenced by developing Indo-Iranian, even though it's a different isoglossal group. It takes on some Indo-Iranian features and words that it transmits to Uralic eventually. 
and it takes on the shatam and rookie rule features from Indo-Iranic before transmission to step and onwards. But Italic German Celtic, uh, much before that, goes into the step, forms the Yamnaya, and then gets transmitted into Europe. Okay, all good. Then Greco-Armenian, this is a Stikanthalagiri uh, 2 isoglosses. Um, Greek goes directly into Greece through, via Turkey. Armenian probably spends some time there and then finally migrates to Armenia. Armenia, you know, being in the Caucasus, it's sort of a, the Caucasus mountains are known as sort of almost a, uh, how to say it, it's, it's a land where lots of different language families coexist. Even now, Uralic languages, then, you know, things like Georgian and so on that are not Indo-European, um, they're all together there. And, and it's probably been the case for a long time because, you know, uh, it's sort of the gateway from the from the southern arc into the steppe. So that's probably where Armenian sort of evolved very slowly. But again, Armenian, remember, Armenian has a Shatam rule. Greek is a Kentum language. This could be because Armenian is in closer proximity to the Indo-Iranic homeland. Which is also Shatam. So it would have also you know, picked up that feature from there. Now, uh, these, of course, you know, so far I've been showing this as a pure blue. It was not a pure blue, obviously, because a lot of admixture events were happening here in this Indo-Iranic region as well. So these are all figures from um, Narasimhan's paper, uh, Vagish Narasimhan's paper, based on ancient DNA data that they have. So around 4500 BCE, here in uh, this area, which, which eventually becomes Susa, Elamite, Iran, um, they're basically half and half, you know, half Anatolian, half uh, Indo-Iranian. Here in Indus Valley, they are, um, you know, um, mostly CHG. They're mostly Indo-Iranian with a little, with some amount of uh, AASI, Andamanese hunter-gatherer, and some amount of West Siberian hunter-gatherer. Okay. By the way, these dots that I've shown you, I, I wanted to point out something. You know what this is here? This thing, this dot here, mm -hmm. this is Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat. Remember that uh, in the Baudanya, what's that? Baudhayana uh, Shrauta Shutra, mm -hmm. there is a um, reference to Arata. Yeah. That they went. And you can see it's, it's it's really kind of wild how they all diverge there. They either go west into Anatolia, Greece, or they go north into the steppe. But that is almost like the um, the turning point to go one way or the other. So it could vary. And and in fact, it becomes there are migrations out of India all the I mean all the way into like the you know 10th century CE and and so on, which is like the Romani migration, which follow basically the same path. So I'm not, you know. Then meanwhile, here these this is Mergad, this is Bhirana, and this is the Tarim Basin where uh, Tokarian languages came. So anyway, let's go back to this figure. Um, so these are the various, um, as we said, ADNA that they found, um, you know, from the Indus periphery and then from Bronze Age Iran and so on. So I'm going to pause it now. I put these white lines around there because these are not based on Vagish Narasimha's DNA. I want to be uh, ADNA samples. I want to be very clear about that. But these are my hypothesis. I, mean, I think they are sound, genetically speaking, because what I'm showing is that, okay, there's a population that is maximally Indo-Iranic. You know, you have two separate clients. One maximizes um, AASI ancestry. One maximizes West Siberian hunter-gatherer ancestry. And so it's very reasonable to think that this this amount of differentiation existed within the Indus Valley slash Vedic civilization, which I consider to be synonymous. 
Okay. Um, so I don't know if how well these correspond to these terms of you know Purus and Druyus, Anu, who, who knows? I mean, most likely they don't correspond because the truth is a lot of these tribal identities, linguistic identities don't match up neatly to some sort of a genetic ancestry. You know, like these people moved over there, they would have intermarried with these people and God knows what else would have happened, right? But my point of drawing these is to show that there is definitely a relationship between all these clients. So if you look at, you know, for example, if these are the source populations, which are, you know, attested by ADNA, this one and this one, okay? If you have a West uh, Iranian, you know, 4,500 BC population, which is half Anatolian Neolithic and half CHG, and you have this um, Indus Valley periphery population, which is, uh, you know, mostly CHG, a little bit of uh, um, ASI, a little bit of Andamanese hunter-gatherer, a little bit of uh, West Siberian. You can see how all these intermediate populations, this whole set, can be formed um, through admixture events between them, right? So as you go further and further east, you have more and more of the West Siberian hunter-gatherer. You have more and more of the CHG. It makes sense that this could have happened. And then once you get into the steppe proper, into the Kyrgyz steppe proper, you have, um, you know, a very large majority of the ancestry is coming from West Siberian hunter-gatherers. This could be one way in which the Bronze Age um, technology came to the Ural Mountains, the Sintrashta over there. We know that the Sintrashta used to trade. They used to have an almost industrial scale of um, copper mining and copper processing. So they could very well have learned all those technologies, like, you know, lost wax and so on, that we know that the Alakul Shrubnaya cultures used. That all came from the Indus Valley. So Bronze Age technology could have easily been transferred along this route, you know, into the steppe, again, out of, you want to call this India, you want to call it Iran, I don't really care. It's it's neither of those things. Uh, but really the, you know, the homeland of the Indo-Iranian uh, CHG group. It could have, you know, come out of there. And the other thing is, is uh, this area here, which is Tokarian. This is the one language you haven't spoken about all of this time. So Tokarian could also have easily been transmitted out of here. You know, much more than from the Yamnaya all the way to here, okay? Which, this is a much more likely scenario. Um, so this is kind of interesting that, you know, Dyson 2018 shows that in about uh, one third of the global population, one third of the global population lived in the Indus Valley civilization, okay? Five million out of 15 million, okay? We know that they expanded south and east, right? Obviously, because the rest of India, you know, has their genetic signatures. Why should we not assume that they also went west or north? Very likely that they did, you know. And uh, as, as I said, like the steppe, Alakul, Srubnaya, Lost Wax, etc. Um, uh, adopted Bronze Age technology from the Indus Valley. But why should we assume that there's no export or la of language or culture from the Indus Valley to all these places? I mean, I just want to show these graphs here about population in the world, okay? We talk about this is the step of so like this blue is kind of you know um, the lowest, then green and then yellow and then orange. That's, that's sort of the grading here. So this is eight thousand BC when our kind of story starts, and you can see that the you know really the only place they're finding anybody they're finding someone in Central America here. Uh, this is based on again a Bayesian analysis by the Copernicus Institute of Sustainable Development um, in Denmark, I think, and you find a bunch here. In the in the Ganga Valley, and then you find a little bit 
and the eastern step but not in the yamna step see how they grow right keep, especially keep your eye here on india this is 5000 5000 5000 you already getting these things a little bit here in the indus saraswati area you know by 4000 there's definitely um you know a good bit in the indus saraswati area 3000 there's no question that you know basically china and india are the most extensive manufacturers of people there is a little bit you know if you see here in the uh, what they call the farming crescent there's little small areas here in anatolia small areas here in iraq and syria and so on but really the massive source of population are all indian subcontinent even more than china 2000 bc it's really enormous you know and 1000 bc there's no question that you know we may not have had pushpak viman we may not have had you know airplanes or uh, nuclear bombs or anything like that one thing we had was public janta was there yeah, lots very, of them they have always been extremely yeah. horny people <laughs> yeah no question about it <laughs> like they you know we are the janta capital of the world and we have always been okay look at that 080 so um what happens around so now i'm trying to explain how did the step ancestry come there so multiple civilizations you will find south of the barrier what i call you know what i call the barrier is like this there's a mountain barrier is it caucasus mountains elburz mountains hindu kush mountains pamir mountains and then uh, himalayas over here right so this forms a natural barrier between this whole southern arc and india versus the step but you find that in the south of the barrier there's a multiple civilizations that collapse around the 1500 to 1000 bc time frame is that a result of population exodus from the inner eurasian con- continent it could have been because you know that's sort of that's also when the steppe ancestry enters greece it is also when the steppe ancestry enters armenia and it is also when the steppe ancestry for vagish at all enter india so it could explain these steppe ancestry signals that have nothing to do with culture they have nothing to do with language it's just these people running away from the step for whatever reason you know like tom says they're not sending their best people folks they're sending rapists they're sending drug dealers and some i assume are good people so that's probably what happened okay <laughs> it has nothing to do with horses wheels sanskrit vedas caste system anything else that they accuse of this is probably how step dna enters all these lands and precipitates collapse of these civilizations because of population pressure because of probably disease disease is a very very overlooked source of um, you know catastrophe in early civilizations you know because because that's just how immunology works right i mean they have uh, acquired immunity to various bugs they carry the bugs here there's no immunity to those bugs in these native populations people start dying left and right so now last the last bit of my presentation is why was it an evolutionary success why is proto indo-european an evolutionary success when so many other language families existed i would say that there are certain characteristics that help again this is my speculation this is not hegarty this is not lazaridis want to make that very clear certain characteristics first it's spoken simultaneously in multiple geographically disparate population sectors there are separate areas so it has a redundancy to it so a catastrophe like a flood disease whatever wipes out one center and the surroundings doesn't completely kill the language because it's still spoken in other areas okay that's first that's the first condition 
Secondly, it has some broadly applicable utility as a means of communication. So, for example, for commerce, for trade, like why does everyone want to learn English these days? It's not because they want to read Shakespeare, right? It's because English is the language in which technology and trade and so on is, is conducted in so much of the world. Finally, that the language group is capable of being rebooted even when it dies out. So even though it's spoken in, in multiple dif uh, different centers, dis uh, geographically disparate population centers, you know, if, if those centers were not in contact with each other, then the language would probably differentiate in each of those centers and become, you know, mutually um, incomprehensible. But if there is some contact between those centers that's continuously renewed, you know, it's capable of being rebooted even when it dies out or is temporarily abandoned at a place where it is spoken by a fresh influx of traveling speakers. That's the last criterion. So it's spoken simultaneously in different areas. It has some, you know, practical use and those areas are in contact with each other. So th with that, I come to the history of sheep domestication. Okay. This is a paper by Chessa et al. in Science uh, um, in uh, 2009. So what have they done? Um, they have taken uh, sheep populations across the world, domesticated sheep, and they've um, they've analyzed them by ancestral retrotype. What is a retrotype? So there's a retrovirus that you know kind of uh, infected these sheep very 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 long ago, and its DNA, the, the DNA of the retrovirus still persists in the genomes of the sheep, you know, from um, it's, it's, it keeps getting replicated in the genome of the sheep and, and uh, remains there. So you can use that as a tracker, again, a tracer die to find where these sheep have come from. And uh, so you have these polymorphic endogenous retroviral sequences stably integrated into the sheep's genomes inherited over generations. So they've done an analysis of 14 different retrotypes, which are ancestral types each representing a different ancestry of domesticated sheep across the whole of Eurasia, right? And here I've drawn in this mountain barrier that we talked about, right? South of the barrier, north of the barrier. North of the barrier is a step in Europe. South is India, uh, Iran, Southeast Asia, of course, and uh, the Levant, the Southern Arc. Notice how south and east of the mountain barrier, okay? The vast majority, the vast majority of sheep populations, domesticated sheep populations, come from just two ancestral retrotypes. This R2 and R4. They're all yellow and green, yellow and green, all of them, this entire area. Okay. By contrast, if you look north and west of the mountain barrier, it's like a rainbow. There's an enormous diversity in the ancestral retrotypes of domesticated sheep populations. All the different retrotype groups are represented. We know, we know for a fact, biologically, that sheep evolved in lands south of the mountain barrier. They, they went from here to there. So what is this telling us? What is this data telling us? First of all, the retrotype populations R2 and R4, the green and yellow ones, are seen in sheep populations north and west, as well as being almost the exclusive pop, uh, retrotypes south of the mountain barrier. So you see here, it's almost all green and yellow. Here, you still see some green and yellow, in the north, but you don't see them in the, uh, you know, you don't see other populations, the other colors in the south, right? So almost all other groups seen abundantly in the north and west of the mountain barrier do not appear south and east of the mountain barrier. So clearly domesticated sheep were herded from lands here in the south and west of the mountain barrier to lands to the north and west, but almost never in the opposite direction 
okay so sheep herders were traveling all across this area all across this area and sometimes went north and west but nobody ever came from there bringing sheep down here in fact that's why i like you know animal migration uh, uh, you know domesticated animal data they don't just butt cow by themselves right i mean they they're usually taken by people for some reason so i think they can tell us a lot more about history than uh, simply you know human migrations and then you see that the remarkable genetic homogeneity okay that this green and yellow green and yellow everywhere south and east of the mountain barrier is consistent with a common herding zone spanning the region why so, would you so th which region uh, we, we are looking at a huge swath right we are looking at this region the this year right yeah so we are looking at india pakistan iran afghanistan basically right up to the caucasus right yeah all the way from myanmar all the way to the caucasus and even to egypt and for that matter even into southern africa where they probably you know uh, may have domesticated the sheep in the, initially into you know east africa and so on but you know what you see here is there's a comp, you know this the spread of these particular two genotypes as opposed to like this whole rainbow of genotypes over here it's consistent with a common herding zone across the region so you know time after time the sheep herders would come they would sell their sheep stocks then you know something some time would pass some of the sheep would die there would be famines whatever again the sheep herders would come they would sell the same stocks you know but they would all come from the same ancestral retrotype because that's just you know uh, there was that kept getting reinforced in every center that they visited that's where they would their suppliers would also become from the uh, sell them sheep from the same retrotype they would also sell they would in turn buy sheep from the same retrotypes so this is consistent with the common herding zone spanning the region the best explanation is that the same two ancestral retrotypes of sheep were herded exchanged bred infused and reinfused into sheep populations across this entire area probably by migrating shepherds or traders repeatedly that's why there was no you know it kept getting reinforced over centuries or millennia note that the common herding region spans the core pi homeland proposed for csg or indo iran plus some adjacent regions known to be in cultural and commercial contact so you know you see some in myanmar thailand all those areas you see some in you know uh, egypt and even though they were not mesopotamia they were not indo um, european speaking but they were known to be in cultural contact there's you know no doubt that ivc used to trade with all of them so that's uh, you know i think that these sorts of clues might give us more um insight into what happens what what oh, all right happens. awesome first of all congratulations man your your presentation skills are out of this world i wish i had your skills but i have two three questions first mm -hmm. myself so in hegarty at all right um uh, in 2023 he say uh, they say however for the period of 4300 to 3700 years bp samples from the bmac do not yet attest to such a southward migration step ancestry is not found until 3500 in the gandhara grave culture in northern pakistan and only at limited proportions i think that's an error because they used narsimhan et al and uh, narsimhan et al uh, clearly states this 
Yamnaya derived ancestry arrived by 2100 BCE. Because of 2100 to 1700 BCE, we observe outliers from three BMAC associated sites carrying ancestry. They ultimately derived from Western Steppe EM. BA pastorals. I'm reading from the paper for people mm -hmm. who are wondering. And then again, they say, thus our data document, uh, southward movement of ancestry ultimately descended from Yamnaya steppe pastoralists who spread into Central Asia by the turn of the second millennium BCE. I think uh, this was a mistake in the Hegarty et al. paper that I, I don't know how they how they missed out because they were citing Narsimhan. So I don't know how they made this mistake. But this was one. I don't want to read the Eurogene's blog here. Eurogene's blog, he just said, I'm not going to waste my time on uh, this paper confirm my bias right i'm not going to waste i mean uh, th that's not fair right i mean the eurogenes blog is not that i i take uh, uh, some pride in you know spending time like i understand eurogenes blog did not want to criticize it but uh, it was better but what was another thing uh, did you look at uh, the thread uh, by cookie cutter on um, on Dr. Semenenko's video, where Dr. Semenenko, uh, he was trying to trace uh, the I Indo, you know, Indo-European tribes, Indo-Iranian, Hittite, Greek, Thracian, Italic. Uh, I think Gopi had shared the thread. Mm. Uh, so in that, he looks at certain tablets, and mm -hmm. he creates a, a, a case of his. Now there are a few questions in this. Now. No, but the only certain conclusion, in my opinion, and I want to hear your views on this, on the basis of this entire presentation and the papers that you have read, I have read is South Russia can't be the homeland. That is the only certainty we can come up with, in yeah. my opinion. Or do you disagree with that? No, generally, I agree. So so I, let's take those things one at a time. So you were talking about uh, Narasimhan's paper. So one thing to keep in mind is, you know, the Narasimhan's paper uses BCE, whereas uh, Hegarty et all used before present. Hmm. P -P, so, yeah. Yeah. So they kind of actually do match, you know, uh, the fact that, uh, they, you know, uh, Hegarty says 3,500 years before present. Narasimhan says 1,500 to 2,100 BCE. So there is, you know, there's no doubt that some step ancestry reached the BMAC, right, at that time, which is the what they call Central Asia. Hmm. What Narasimhan found for sure is that there is no transmission of ancestry from the BMAC into India. There's just mm. none. And that mm. was the easiest way for the step hypothesis people, you know, to say, okay, it came for, from Central Asia, Urals, it came into BMAC, and then from there into India. And that's just, you know, that was actually, um, most people don't talk about it, but that's actually an important result of the Narasimhan paper is that it shows that it didn't come into India that way. Okay. And and when we talk about the Caucasus also, right? Mm -hmm. Like Lazaridis at all is more Armenia, right? They they are focused on Armenia, but the Caucasus region clearly includes Iran and uh, Turkey too, right? At least a huge chunk of that portion, right? The Caucasus. Well, yeah. So the Caucasus, I mean, uh, yeah. So they kind of, you know, that strip of land between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, the Caucasus mountains sort of slant between them. So Azerbaijan, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, um, northwestern Iran is part of it, I guess. Um, mm. Armenia and uh, maybe part of Turkey is also modern day Turkey might also be there. Georgia is mm. part of it. So, 
now now full disclosure i i have never hidden it i have always been very much leaning to a caucasus i don't know iranian homeland now my question to you karthik from the genetics perspective is when i was looking at your presentation the most common factor in all of this i find is the indo iranian genetic component as they like to call it or do they call it something else well different papers are calling it different things right so uh um wagish narsimhan calls it iran neolithic okay uh, you know uh, i think shinde also calls it that Lazaridis in his paper calls it CHG, Caucasus Hunter Gatherer. It's but it's the same component, and he's given data to show that's the same one. And uh, Shinde finds that it's the major component in that Raki Gadi. It's like something like seventy, eighty percent of Raki Gadi. Uh, hmm. The same component. So basically, what Hegarty has confirmed through his paper is what they say is this is a hybrid model, right? Hybrid model, arthat, it is neither this, neither that. that hmm. is what they were saying right that yeah. you cannot the, this is clearly not nomadic pastoralism and what the point they make about nomadic pastoralists right uh, mm-hmm. which is the south russian hypothesis yeah yeah so what what hegarty and all um, so the original demic diffusion theory of uh, renfrew it didn't really in, involve any role for the yamna at all i mean it was sort of agnostic about that but i think what hegarty and all recognizing was so that even when we looked at the slides in the yamnaya was probably the source of carrying um italic germanic celtic into europe there's probably no argument about that maybe even balto slavic into europe came via the step into europe so that part of the story of the step hypothesis is probably true but where did the yamnaya get those languages They, the step hypothesis says that they evolved them on their own that indo proto indo european existed there in the step whereas what's becoming very clear now is that they probably got those languages when the chg people came from uh, you know armenia iran and went north so 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 on the basis of this holistic reading and i always recommend people like you have to read lazaridis you have to read hegarty you have to understand the internal chronology of the rigveda that shrikant telagiri talks about you can only come up with a likely region which is the indo iranian region that could be the proto indo european homeland when i say the indo iranian region i mean i want to clarify is literally from the haryana area punjab haryana area all the way up to that caucasus ka caucasus ka region i call it the indo iranian region it's a huge area now people might say kushal tum to aisa itna phail gaye ho abhi main phail gaya hu to phail gaya hu this is what i call and i lean of like my personal view has always been that there were two migrations one went towards the step uh, steps which is south russia and one originally proto indo european speaking people might have come to india they independently formulated the rigveda on their own in india then a group of these people kept on going back and forth that is how you have the rigveda and avesta and shrikant alagiri's rock solid analysis of mm-hmm. uh, you know his third book or fourth book i don't remember which one it is rigveda historical analysis the rigveda and the uh, avesta the final evidence where he looks at the avesta and the rigveda yeah. now in such a case why do you think people are still obsessed with the south russian hypothesis and then i will take uh, audience questions and we'll wrap it up i mean it's it's i think it has a lot to do with politics and i'm not talking about left wing right wing politics i'm talking yeah, about yeah. the politics of academia ah. which is that you know a- academics have been playing the influencer game long before social media made everybody an influencer right 
having wielding influence it was the currency of power and the currency of uh, was you know the source of getting money and funding there so when you had people like i don't know um jp mallory and david anthony and all these folks saying you know this is probably the truth and especially in sort of this multidisciplinary field where you know there are all these different areas where you have genetics you have archaeology you have linguistics and so on so if there's this one group that's getting a lot of funding then other people that want to also get funding will associate themselves with it and therefore they'll associate themselves with the speculations of that and you know repeated often enough it becomes received wisdom right so i think that's where the you know step theory comes from but the fact is i mean these days you have you know some some fellow was like criticizing tadagiri ji as you know you know the reason you oppose step theory not not the reason that he says out of india but the reason you oppose step hypothesis because you're a hindu nationalist i mean it's like that kind of inanity has begun to abound you know uh, it's like that's all they have anymore that's all <laughs> i mean it's it's come under so much um you know so much as uh, it, it's it's become so undermined by uh, the amount of data that's been coming out especially in being published in the last two or three years that you know you almost have to attack the motivations of someone who opposes it in order to make a point yeah it's it's unfortunate because look i have never hidden my skepticism about out of india because uh, i i i fail to see archaeological evidence for it I I don't see the archaeological evidence like if somebody might say oh look this tablet has gone from here to here well I can sh- show the tablet in the reverse order also that, I mean but for archaeological evidence we have to see material culture in a major way and mm-hmm. somehow when we look at Iran and that Caucasus region as a baseline everything just seems to fall in place including Shrikant sir's uh, anal chronology also including Shrikant sir's chronology in my opinion now uh shrikant sir got mad at me when i said uh, this i i don't know why but uh, but that it's fine that's that's not the point but now mm-hmm. i will take uh, a couple of questions who have asked this so somebody has asked could post ivc settlements be asi plus iran neolithic plus iran neolithic i don't know i'm just putting the question i don't understand this question um well yeah pretty much certainly there were aasi aasi so um you know andamani santa gatherer was this the proxy this been this been put there um the majority component was iranian neolithic hmm. and um, then there was some amount of west siberian hunter gatherer also so that's mm-hmm. the profile that we see in all of these um, okay i mean it's hard to say because in india is one place even though we had a lot of public we have almost no adna because it was very hot and wet and full of bacteria and uh, you know it's just not the kind of place where adna survives that that's actually a very important point okay somebody has asked if there are multiple conflicting hypotheses why does not the educational content teach these different hypotheses rather than sticking to the same one also can you suggest any reliable reads you can answer that i will also answer this well i mean because nobody has done anything about it nobody has done anything about revising i mean that's hardly the only thing in the history syllabus that needs to have been changed and i'm shocked that it has not in 10 years um but in terms of reliable reads i would say you know read shrikant ragheri ji's books firstly you know they're very accessible 
and you know you can understand what's going on i mean that gives you a great framework to kind of get everything that you need to know and then um you know read the lazaridis um, paper to the extent that you can follow it i mean i know your familiarity with the genetics at all but i would read that and then read this read the other side also read the uh, horse the wheel and language see what he's saying you know and what his arguments are in my opinion they're very far fetched they're not very well supported he does a lot of this stuff where he baits and switches so like he'll make a case in one chapter we'll say this could have happened that may have happened speculative next chapter suddenly the thing that he made as a speculative in the previous chapter is now taken as a certainty and he's using that as an assumption to build to do more theory crafting but that's my opinion i mean everyone should read why you know it's such an influential book the hostile wheel language by david anthony i would say definitely read michel danino you know this is all stuff that we read kushal so you know michel danino's uh, lost river the saraswati it's a great book it's awesome i would say read um, you know um the other that bb lal's bb lalji's books you know um i'm i'm surprised that these you know kindle editions of these things don't exist i had to buy them like somebody do a service of you know digitizing these and putting them online you know uh that would be great if even if their publishers are not going to do it and um vaise david anthony bhi iran pe shift ho gaya shift hona hi tha na yeah i mean yeah see the reason yeah. i i'm skeptical about i mean i'm a little skeptical about iran only for one reason which is that the population was not there like you know we looked at those population graphs from copernicus institute mm-hmm. you know it's a it's a dry hilly desert kind of area it's like utne to jan hi nahi the wahan pe so i i really... i understand that i understand that what you're saying hmm. but but my my counter to that would be that's not a necessary condition for a homeland to not exist is what it's, i'm trying yeah i mean my theory i i don't think there was a homeland i think that that the home like the homeland is just where the grazing area that's my that's what i think it is hmm. which can it's just a large from... swath it's a hmm. huge area where which is yeah. very fluid and people kept on moving in that area yeah and they kept on trading sheep which is exactly why it happened because you know they were trading maybe sheep and maybe other things also in addition to sheep but sheep are the tracker that we can use to measure this sort of commerce that was continuously happening and you know repeatedly happening so that would have continuously continuously you know refueled or you know reignited indo european at all these different population centers it would have meant that in any given population center if there was an earthquake or a pandemic or something and everybody died well the language would come back because other people would keep visiting it and um and and it would be useful as a currency so there's an evolutionary advantage to learning in indo european language so yeah. i think these are the three things that would have made it successful yeah so i i'll i i'll answer the same question and uh, this is how i'll answer it first of all uh, in the case of conflicting hypothesis we have to be very careful about conflicting hypothesis like uh, how how valid is the other side that is conflicting the hypothesis uh, i always give this caveat because there are flat earthers also Mm-hmm. let let's be very clear and everybody who challenges something thinks they are not a flat earther so this is why maybe a lot of times academics uh, or yeah. academia functions on what is popularly called in academic circles as academic consensus or mm-hmm. in a very religious sort of way orthodoxy 
yeah. where we just go with the convention. It is not some Machiavellian plan. They are not some mm -hmm. Machiavellian people who are thinking and scheming uh, and doing because as Dr. Elst has beautifully pointed out that out of India theory was not an Indian invention. It was a European invention. The Europeans actually promoted out of India the most and then they turned into, mm -hmm. you know, Aryan invasion. They turned into Aryan invasion. But out of India was never an Indian pipe dream. It was a European thing. And sure. the Indians then later on, some Indians actually are very chauvinistic where they just make outrageous claims. But unfortunately, serious people like Srikanth Talagiri get clubbed in that group. And Srikanth Talagiri is not in that group. He's a serious scholar, which is why I always, I mean, I, at least in my platform, have tried to promote his work the most, the most. I have, Because he he's, he's someone you should take seriously. And the rest of the things I'll say this is, this is why I created my Patreon program, right? That's the whole reason I did. Because when many of the books that Karthik has mentioned, I've literally covered them in my Patreon program, including the ones that completely challenge the, the, the very view, which is why I covered, you know, linguistic uh, paleontology ka baseline. Which is mm -hmm. why I, I I picked up a book where you learn linguistic paleontology. I picked up a David Anthony. I picked up many other books. So you have to read a multitude. Like if you want to come, I'm, you might be say, apna Patreon Patreon It is a list of papers. It is a list of books. And I read through every page, literally. Mm -hmm. So it is like an audible version of that book, but not audible because wo thoda book read kiya jata hai, discuss kiya jata hai, thoda book read kiya jata hai, discuss kiya jata hai. That if you are interested in this subject, if you are not, you don't have to. But the whole aim of me doing this was so that there is one entire, you know, gamut of work because I knew B.B. Lal's book were books were going to die. Hmm. I knew that. That is why I read those books. Like the painstaking effort it took for me and poor uh, poor Vrushal yeah. who helped me in that process. I mean, Karthik knows everything that I have done for, you know, preserving those books. Before somebody says, I have pirate, I have not In fact, I have not Taki dekho ye book liki hui ye drawings hai, ye 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 archaeological mounds hai, yaha ye hora hai, yaha wo hora hai. It took painstaking effort for me to singularly take photos of every single valid book paper of B.B. Lal. So, you know, that's why I did it because I wanted to do this. So, before wrapping up, Karthik, this was a fantastic presentation. Uh, uh, I, if if people have any questions, I will email them, so club them all together, and I will yeah. email them all to you. Okay. Okay. Sure. I will yeah. go best tarika, and that's the best way to deal with it. And thank you very much for coming. Sure. Anytime. All right. All right, guys. Hi. We'll wrap today uh, today's discussion up. Now I know there is an audio only uh, version of this that is going to go up. I don't know how you guys are going to manage, but uh, I don't know. La Karthik, can we uh, upload the presentation uh, if you are okay with it? If you yeah, are yeah, sure. Okay. I can make a PDF, I guess. I, okay, so I can send PDF. PDF. Na, uska hyperlink. Ke, I will put it up. So, you know, people, you just like the last time Karthik had come on the podcast, you know, he gave me the PDF of his presentation. It is all his work. 
before somebody says nothing to do with me it is all his work so all credit goes to kartik i will just share the link of his presentation in the description of the podcast i will add it uh, either tomorrow or day after so you can download it and even if you are an audio listener you will benefit from it you can watch the presentation as you know you hear kartik speak and the you, the video uh, people well you have what you have send your questions to me if you want to email them email them in the comment section you can leave them in the comment section i'm sure comment section ka to even karthik can pick up the questions and uh, this is why i designed this podcast guys uh, i don't get excited when i speak to a politician that's not my nature i i don't i could care less between you and i I get excited when I talk about things that matter to me, where we can do a deep dive like a nerd into a subject. This has been my passion, which is why when I tweeted, you know, people were like, "Arey, kya tu Modi se baat karo?" I'm excited bhi nahi hunga uske liye. I'm itna clearly bol raha hu. I'm aisi chizon ke liye excited hota hu, jisme science, history, something knowledgeable is involved. So that and that's why I don't do ad reads also on this podcast because I want this to be an intellectual endeavor, which is run only by members. members who push this podcast and i can do what i want to do so if you can please support the charvak podcast by becoming a member on patreon youtube fanmo jidhar bhi ho if you want to buy the merch you can do that and if you can't do any of that the least you can do is like the video comment kar dena subscribe kar dena if you are an audio listener just leave a rating on the audio platform i'll see you guys next time namaste take care bye